Welcome to the 401st episode of the Reading and Writing Podcast. Stay tuned for my interview with author Byron Lane, author of the new novel, A Star is Bored. Stay tuned for the interview. The Reading and Writing Podcast is brought to you by Libro FM. Libro.fm lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore. You can pick from more than 185,000 audiobooks, including bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers. You'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there, but you'll be part of a different story one that supports your local community and your local bookstore. If you're new to audiobooks, they're the perfect way to get more books into your busy life. You can listen during your commute, while doing chores, walking the dog, or just relaxing at home. All you need is a smartphone and the free Libro.fm app. If you already love audiobooks and don't know what to listen to next, check out recommendations and curated lists from people who know audiobooks best, your local bookseller. Here's your special offer from the Reading and Writing Podcast. Get two audiobooks for the price of one today with your first month of membership with the code RWPODCAST at checkout. This offer is only valid for new members in Canada and the U.S., Check out Libro.fm today. Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is Byron Lane, author of the new novel, A Star is Bored. Byron, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. If someone listening hasn't heard about your book, A Star is Bored yet, how would you describe the book? So A Star is Bored is inspired by the three years that I was personal assistant to actress Carrie Fisher. And it's about a personal assistant who's trying to manage his eccentric movie star boss and how the two of them develop a friendship and come to save each other. What was the original idea? You told us what it's based on, but what was the impetus for you to sit down and write A Star is Bored? So I worked for Carrie for three years and it was such an adventure. She is an amazing human. I loved my time with her. I wish she was still with us. And after she passed away, I wrote a little tribute on Facebook where I talked a little bit about some of our adventures together. We traveled all over the world. We met cool people. We did great things. She was so brilliant and always making me laugh. And people responded to that Facebook post. And I thought, maybe I have more I can offer the world about our experiences together and what it was like for me to be someone who was uh, shy and serious to, to become inspired by someone who was uh, not very shy and not very serious. And uh, Carrie used to always say, take your broken heart and go make art. And so that's what I tried to do with the book is take some of the inspiration of our time together and give that spirit to these characters in the book, send these characters on some adventures and, and, and try to share that experience. For people who might not be familiar with Hollywood and the world of celebrity or personal assistance, what did your job with Carrie Fisher entail exactly? Personal assistant jobs to celebrities vary. They're really all over the map. Some people have it better than others. I had a great experience. So I would show up for work at 10 or 1030. Sometimes I would wake Carrie up and get her day started. Sometimes she'd already be up and at them. 
And then it's just basic stuff. What does she need? Did she eat? I would sort her meds, make sure that was all taken care of. If there were any appointments, we'd follow up on that. If travel was coming up, we'd talk about booking flights. And then, of course, there are agents and managers and people who need things from her. So I would go be the go-between. So it was a lot of that stuff. And sometimes running errands, can you go buy a gift for this person? Can you go pick up this, the dry cleaners? So it was all kinds of various things. And when there was travel, it was we traveled together. We stayed in the hotels together. Sometimes I would get to go with her to cool meetings. So it really was like uh, you're a teammate. And that's what it felt like. Were you there in meetings taking notes for her? Sometimes it wasn't always about taking notes. Sometimes because Carrie, her memory wasn't great because of she was bipolar. She was open about issues with drug addiction and whatnot in the past. And so, so sometimes it was just a matter of, do you remember what they said about this? So it was that kind of thing. When someone writes a novel so closely rooted in their real world experience, people inevitably ask, what's real and what's fiction? And how would you answer that question about A Star is Bored? It's definitely fiction. It definitely belongs on the fiction shelf. It's full of imagination. But some of it is some of it are just little kernels of, of real life experience. So for example, Carrie and I did travel to Japan. And there are some uh, scenes in the book where the two characters go to Japan, but a lot of the stuff that happens to them in Japan is made up. So really, I just tried to capture the spirit of our time, which was which was honestly just really fun and really loving. And for me, I'm really just, I'm from Louisiana. We were poor growing up and I found myself in Los Angeles and had this opportunity to interview and work for this big movie star. So for me, seeing some of that stuff was very eye-opening and life-changing and and really cool. So those are the things I tried to bring to the book, a sense of this guy from a rural part of the United States who is thrown into this otherworldly experience where he's able to get some of the things from his movie star that maybe he did get from like his parents or from his life and and that he's healed in some way. And so what was that like for you, actually? Because I actually lived in uh, Louisiana for a year after college. The difference between that and L.A. or New York City is dramatic. What was your experience like? That's a pretty big shift. Yeah, I didn't realize that Louisiana, where I lived, wasn't really like a real city until I moved (laughs) to Los Angeles. Like it was that kind of thing where it's like, what? Or honestly, to live in a place where like my memories of Louisiana are rain, humidity, when I think back, I feel like I was, my socks were always wet. And, but it just, it isn't like that out here in LA. And, and then culturally is very different too. I would say where I lived in Louisiana, there wasn't a lot of diversity. People there were very conservative. And so you get out to LA and things are very different. And, and what prompted that move for you? I, I uh, hopped skipped and jumped there. So I studied journalism in college. And so I was I was really into journalism and TV news. And so when I was in college, I was a writer for the local TV news station. And then I wanted to get on TV as a news reporter. So I got a job in central Louisiana in Alexandria for a couple of years. And then I tried to get another job in a bigger market. So in, in broadcast news, you just try to keep going up, up, so I, but I couldn't get a job. And finally, I, I landed a, a job at the uh, CBS affiliate in uh, Las Vegas. So then I worked in Las Vegas for a few years as, a, as an overnight uh, news reporter for their morning show. 
And that was a really dreadful job where basically it really was like ambulance chasing, like listening to a police scanner and <laughs> riding around with a photographer and whatever was the worst crime scene that night was our story for the morning show. <laughs> then that got, you didn't enjoy that. Oh, I'll tell you, I saw the craziest things, but it was a little depressing. It was yeah. hard to, and, and the hours too, because I'd show up to work at midnight and then get off at seven. And so my sleep was a mess. And anyway, so when that job ended, I, I moved to LA where I had some friends and, and then I started, I also worked at a news station out here in LA, but I wasn't on TV. I was just a news writer. And, and then I got into auditioning uh, for uh, TV and commercials and stuff like that and trying to write uh, screenplays and whatnot. So yeah, so I went from New Orleans to Alexandria to Las Vegas to Los Angeles. Great. Was A Star is Bored, was that the first time you had written fiction? No, I had written, I actually wrote a novel while I was in um, Las Vegas, but it was not very good. And it never went anywhere. It still lives on, I think it's on a floppy disk somewhere. <laughs> and so that was my first bit of fiction. But then once I got into LA and I started, so I, I had auditioned for this web series called Lonely Girl 15, which was one of the first scripted things on YouTube. I remember that. Yeah, it was like this crazy thing. And no one knew if, if this uh, actress was an actress or a real person. And and I had auditioned for them and I almost got the part, but didn't. And then thought to myself, I can write something like this. And so that was the first fiction that I wrote. I wrote a, a little web series and then that got turned into, I turned that into a, a feature film, like an indie film that I shot with actress Octavia Spencer and actress Beth Grant. Then I wrote a, I had testicular cancer. So I wrote a web series about that. And, uh, but this uh, stars board is my first novel. Right. Did you have any particular or vivid memories of Carrie that didn't make it into the book that come to mind? Gosh, there were so many experiences with her really were vivid because she did not live a boring life. So <laughs> everything about her was full of color. There is a scene in the book that is inspired by real life that is one of my favorite moments with her. And that is uh, one day she got a, she signed up for weather alerts. So she liked to know what was going on with the environment and the atmosphere. And so she got this weather alert that uh, conditions were perfect for one of the most spectacular sightings of the Aurora Borealis. So she said, we got to go see the Northern Lights. It's a once in a lifetime time for, the, for this event, book flights. And so I was like, well, when? And she's like, tomorrow. So we called the travel agent. We booked these flights. We fly out to Yellowknife, Canada. I didn't even have a winter coat. She bought me a, a fancy winter coat. And then the next thing you knew, we, we found ourselves on a frozen lake with a tour guide showing us the, the Northern Lights. And the cool thing about that is I'd seen a bunch of cool things working for her, just things that I just never would have got to see as some poor kid from Louisiana. But this was really special because while she had traveled the world already in her life, she hadn't seen the Northern Lights. So it was a real chance for me to see her in awe of something. And uh, that didn't happen every day. And it was really beautiful and cool and uh, something I'll never forget. I'm sure it's a, a sad and probably tragic, but I wanted to ask, do you? I'm sure that you remember, how did you find out about her passing away? So I had stopped working for her in 2014. And that it was a very friendly exit. It really, it just came down to, I had other ambitions for my life. I wanted to get into a relationship. I had just started dating uh, my boyfriend. We're still together. 
seven years later. And so I wanted that relationship to to flourish, but, but she was going to London to shoot the new Star Wars and I would have had to move there for a long period of time. And also I was into writing and so I, I couldn't meet with my writer's group because of the travel. And so the job just became a little bit where I had to ask myself, do I want to keep living her life or do I want to take a bet on my own? Sure. So I chose to try to bet on myself and see what happened. And so I left her in 2014, but we stayed in touch and mostly we would uh, text and email and that kind of thing. And when she would have parties at her house, she invited me over. And so I just seen her at her birthday party. And then I remember one day I was going to, to take a nap and my phone started to, to start to get text messages and all that kind of thing. And that was when she had the, the incident on the airplane and then I think it was, was it a few days later or so I was, my phone started going off again and that's when she passed. And it was really hard because she, she really did change my life. She saved my life in so many ways and made me feel like I had a, a worthy place in the world. Cause I just felt invisible before, before I met her and just being around her, I felt seen and I felt uh, like I had some value for someone. And, uh, and also she was the first person I was close to who died. My parents are still alive. My grandparents died when I was very young. So Carrie was my first significant real loss. And, and so it was really heavy. It was really sad. And, and I, all I can do is just lean back on the good experiences and the love and the friendship. And, and that's what I did. Sure. That's tough. What was your writing process like for A Star is Bored? Did you sit down and plot or outline the novel before jumping into the story? I wish I would have. I wish I would have. I do have a bad habit of most of the projects I write of just uh, like a scene will pop in my head and I'll start with that and just go. And then later on, I'm like, oh man, I gotta go. I gotta, I need an outline. So I'm like a post outline type of guy. I'm getting better about it now. Like new projects I've been working on, I've been outlining and planning. But for this one, the first drafts were just, I just went to town. So I just started somewhere and went and then later on filled in the gaps. So are you working on another novel or movie now? Yeah, I'm outlining a a bunch of different things. I'm not sure which one it'll be. I'm not sure which one will stick. I'm still in the phase of waking up in the middle of the night and putting notes in my, my iPhone notes app. So I'm still working on the next thing. Great. What writing advice would you offer for listeners who might be writing their own stories or novels? One one writing book that I love, I'm a huge fan of Chuck Palahniuk because I love that his stories are so inventive and creative and you feel like you're on a speed train, like you get on and it's nonstop. And he has a book on writing called Consider This, which I think is uh, so cool and so helpful. And the suggestions he makes are things that I respond to in books that I read and are things that help me with my writing. So that's a recommendation. But the most, the main advice I give to people is keep going. If you have an idea, go, just keep writing. And, and yeah, you'll have to go back and you'll have to edit. But I, and someone very wisely on Twitter just posted something like, you can't edit something that you haven't written yet. So that's my main advice. Don't give up. If you have a story to tell, keep going and you'll find your way. Great. What novels or nonfiction books have you enjoyed recently? For the first time, I just read Tom Parada's book, Election, which I thought was so fun. I'm a huge fan of Taylor Jenkins Reid, who did Daisy Jones and Evelyn Hugo. John Boyne's Hearts Invisible Furies was a great one. So those are some that were, those are some that I've enjoyed recently. Luke Geddes just did a book, uh, Heart of Junk, 
which I loved, which was about a, a group of people at an antiques show. Everyone has a different booth with different weird antiques. And <laughs> so all their personalities clash. And it's it just was really fascinating, fun to read. And it reminded me a little bit about Carrie, because when I would travel with her, she would always like to stop in weird shops and uh, antique malls and that kind of thing. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. That's great. Where can people find you online if they'd like to learn more about you and A Star is Bored? I'm on the usual stuff. So I'm on uh, Instagram at byronlane.com, D-O-T-C-O-M. And I'm on uh, Twitter at Byron Lane. And I have a website, byronlane.com. Any of those stuff, feel free to check it all out and reach out. And uh, so I, I have the novel. It's available now wherever books are sold. There, the audiobook is done by great actor Noah Galvin from The Real O'Neills on TV, but he's also been on Broadway with Evan Hansen. And the audiobook is so great. You'll love it. Great. Again, we've been speaking with Byron Lane, author of the new novel, A Star is Bored. The book is available now, as he just mentioned, so go buy a copy. And Byron, thanks for doing this interview. Of course. Thanks, Jeff. And now stay tuned for a brief excerpt from the audiobook of A Star is Bored by Byron Lane, narrated by Noah Galvin and published by Macmillan Audio, available wherever audiobooks are sold. Part 1. Icarus 1. I'm parked and panicked outside the estate of Hollywood royalty Kathy Cannon, star of stage and screen and People Magazine's worst-dressed list. The only barrier between us is her massive front gate, made of wood and steel. Elements at once both warm and hard, welcoming and severe. The vertical beams of the gate are covered in art. An orange street sign that says dump. A painting of Santa Claus smoking a cigarette. A banner announcing clothing optional beyond this point. My car, like my life, is idling out here. A couple minutes early for this job interview. The chance to be personal assistant to Kathy Cannon. My windshield frames the scene in front of me, her gate bordered by the clear, cool landscape of Beverly Hills, blue sky above, bright greens and hot pinks of sprawling bougainvillea on the left, aged branches of a huge avocado tree on the right, and, along the bottom, the gold hood of my used and tattered 2002 Nissan Sentra. Mostly gold, that is. The paint is peeling off in some parts exposing raw, rusted, pocked steel beneath. I'm trying to chill out, wringing my hands, biting the inside of my mouth. The familiar and faint taste of blood always marks occasions like this. When I'm nervous, when I'm insecure, when I desperately want something, sometimes there's pain. I want to be inside this gate. I'm thinking, I don't belong here. I'm sweating and grossly unsure what's ahead for me. Through the beams of her gate, I see specks of an entire universe laid out in a curious mix of earth tones and neon. I can make out things shimmering and shining in her yard. It looks like a carnival. 
It looks like an acid trip. It looks like heaven. I feel like I'm going to puke, sickened by the unfamiliar optimism that this may be exactly what I'm looking for, the beginning of something special for me. Her gate, an actual gateway to a better life. I'm here for the opportunity of my lifetime, and I'm exhausted from having been up all night, not from partying or from insomnia or anxiety, but working a job I hate. I'm a writer for local television news in Los Angeles. I've had the job seven years on the aptly named Graveyard Shift. I start at midnight and write, write, write news stories that go into some ungrateful server and through some disinterested wires and onto the emotionless teleprompter where the overpaid, contractually malnourished anchor reads the words I wrote with a smile on her face. Your toothpaste causes cancer. A dozen orphans are dead in a fire. Today is going to be sunny. We go off the air at 7 a.m., and that's when I leave work every morning, depressed and bleary-eyed. I drive home to eat bland, stale cereal, then go to sleep as the rest of the world starts waking, living. Friends are impossible to service with this schedule. There's no line of lovers interested in me, a night crawler. My life feels like rot. I'm desperate to change it all. And this meeting with Kathy Cannon is my foolhardy tug on a soggy wishbone. I've considered other career changes before, but none panned out. None made sense at the time, and none have been this exciting. Kathy Cannon, heroine of film, television, maybe my life. Save me from my boring, worse-than-basic existence. I beg you, be my hope. I've loved Kathy since childhood, watching her as priestess to Laura, the leader of a future Earth under attack by invaders in the epic film Nova Quest. Of course, I didn't know her real name back then, but I knew I loved her. I had almost every action figure in her franchise. Almost. I had the bad guy, I had multiple versions of the good guys, I had every robot, spaceship, castle, but I didn't have her. Not for long, anyway. My sweet mother gave me the Priestess Talara action figure as an Easter gift, her royal silhouette replacing the boring chocolate bunny. But my dad wasted no time removing the Priestess from my life. He thought female action figures were the reason I ran like a girl as he put it. One rainy day, after a game of soccer, a sport he forced me to play, where I was the only kid running around the mud puddles instead of through them, he yanked the priestess from my hands. I cried out, bawling. No, don't take her from me! I never saw her action figure again. And now, I'm outside her house. And not just hers, but her family's. Kathy Cannon isn't famous only for film. She's famous for DNA. Her mother is the Gracie Gold, America's darling redhead sweetheart from countless Broadway hits and Hollywood films and TV shows and tabloid magazine covers dating back to the 50s. Kathy's late father was also well-known, a music executive courted and cajoled across Hollywood and New York before his recent death. I'll be entering not just Kathy's world, but also that of Gracie. They live in separate houses in this same compound, 
the one that's now right in front of me, on the other side of this troublesome barrier. Kathy's gate intercom call box is stretching toward me like an aggressive handshake, with its little silver button and the words engraved beside it, press to call. I'm about to push a button, no doubt pushed previously by her rich and famous friends who, according to Us Weekly, visit her regularly. Johnny Depp, Candace Bergen, Matthew McConaughey. That button, silver and shiny and scorching hot from the summer sun. I'm thinking, pushing this button may burn me. I'm thinking, this new job will be worth it. I'm thinking, this all might hurt a little. I always wondered how you get an opportunity like this. Turns out, a celebrity assistant job only comes from one place, your enemy. The offer came spelled out in an email from Bruce, this guy I hate. I can't even say his name without an insipid inflection, Bruce. We accidentally met one night at a gay bar after he spilled an entire dry martini on me. I would never normally stay in touch with someone like him, but I keep running into him at the Rite Aid in my neighborhood. Rite Aid, that cruel vortex of people I would rather never see. I remember Bruce because he's hands down handsome and uniquely annoying, overly obsessed with titles and social standing and the science of the fade of his buzz cut. And I suppose he remembers me because, although he can't seem to remember my name, he once said I look like Frodo, so I guess that counts as me making an impression. Hey, Frodo, he yelled as we bumped into each other a couple months ago near the pharmacy, him buying protein powder and me buying a neti pot. Please don't call me Frodo, I said. I'm Charlie, sorry. Apology accepted, Bruce said cheerfully, inexplicably giving me a thumbs up. I should be able to remember that. My ex-ex-boyfriend had a dog named Charlie who got hit by a car and now has two legs and rides around in a little wheel thing with a diaper. It's cute. The Rite Aid cashier piped up on the intercom, asking for help at the register. We're all drowning, apparently. Bruce. I resent him. I abhor him. I friended him on Facebook. I like to see the lives I'm not living. Every time I read one of his posts, I literally groan, ugh, before I click like. He works for Kathy's agent and was tasked with finding Kathy a new personal assistant. Bruce says Kathy's prior personal assistant was straight, hot, Peruvian, and her reps heard rumors the two maybe got a little too personal. So Bruce says they're looking for someone like me, a gay writer to help her keep her life together while specifically not having sex with her. Kathy's team also wants someone who will help her pen more novels. She isn't doing a lot of acting these days, and her books are apparently easy money. My job responsibilities would include encourage her to write, correct her punctuation, make her wear a bra. It took two seconds to consider my shit news job, and then I told Bruce, I want it. Outside Kathy's gate, at arm's length from her intercom, I roll down my Nissan's window, and the old, bubbled, fraying tinting makes a horrible cracking sound as it goes down. I still have my journalism brain turned on, thinking in terms of news headlines, of what it will look like, the story of me making my way into Kathy Cannon's life. 
The headline will read, Loser Gets Big Break. The headline will read, Moron Meets Movie Star. The headline will read, Nerd's Dream Comes True. I close my eyes. I breathe deeply, sucking in that famous Beverly Hills air as I aggressively try to brush down my puffy hair, the bits on the sides that curl up, refusing to cooperate. My body often lets me down when I need it most. I'm thinking, can I do this? My self-doubt is trying to ruin it. How hard can this job be? Sure, Kathy has some mental health issues she's openly discussed, but it's Hollywood. Who doesn't? Sure, Kathy is a former drug addict, but I can manage that. I know I won't be an enabler, an assistant who drives their celebrity boss off the cliff. I know that cliff very well. I know nothing good comes from it. I know what self-destruction looks like. I have a long resume of getting drunk and high and having unsafe sex a few too many times, a few too many close calls. My therapist calls it passive suicidal behavior, and I figure she might be right. I've cut back on my drinking and smoking pot and casual fucking. If I'm going to kill myself to end my crusty life, it will be active suicidal behavior. Maybe if this job interview doesn't go well. I'm not exactly suicidal suicidal. I don't have a plan or anything. But suicide has always had a spot on my vision board. With my shitty news job and pathetic lonely life, I admit, I think of suicide like some people think of going back to college. I reach my arm out of my trusty Nissan's window and press the call button on the intercom. It's hard to push and leaves a round indentation on my finger, like when I was a kid and squished my thumb down on the top of a pencil eraser. I've been in Kathy Cannon's orbit for only a few moments, and staring at my finger, I realize I'm already deliciously marked by her. When suddenly, a voice from the intercom screams, Hurry! And then cuts out. Was that her? Confused. Alarmed, I look around and shout back at the silver box. What? Silence. I look around for answers, advice, but her trees, her gate, that smoking Santa Claus painting, offer nothing but derision, mockery, jeering. I turn back to the intercom. I'm listening for anything, any sign of what to do next, how to proceed. I'm ready to introduce myself, to sell myself, to humbly accept rescheduling if she tells me she forgot about this meeting. I reach out, about to push the button again, but then I hear a click. Did I break something? Then I see the gates to Kathy Cannon's estate parting, her world opening up to me, just like that in a snap, just like it's no big deal, just like she doesn't even care if I could be a murderer, a stalker, a Mormon. Did I break something? Did I break into something? Is something falling apart or snapping into place? Hurry! I hear ringing in my ears. I throw the Nissan into drive, gears catching and jolting, 
tires making a brief ripping sound as they catch the pavement, the car lurching forward towards the gates, which are opening slowly, slowly, slowly. Hurry! I inch and creep. Start, stop, start, stop. Through the gates until finally my side view mirrors fit, and I speed onto the property towards some unknown emergency. I'm thinking, this is great. I'm thinking, this is luck. I'm thinking, this is crazy. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.